Hey guys, how you doing? Andrew and JJ here. And if we're speaking to you without music, it means something important is happening. Here's what happened. We have a full podcast. It's an amazing podcast. It's ready to go for you. We were about to hit upload on it. Uh, Alexi Lalas is going to join to talk about all things U.S. soccer from an unbelievable summer for the men. Uh, interesting things for the women, of course, as well. Harry Kane transfer rumors, Jack Grealish, a mailbag. There's so much for us to get to in this podcast. But as we were about to hit upload, some <laughs> truly jaw-dropping and like unbelievable breaking news came down that we felt there was no way we could put a podcast out at this time without addressing it. And it involves Lionel Messi and his future or lack of a future at Barcelona uh, JJ, what do you have? Uh, basically, Andrew, the tweet started uh, swirling around um, saying that there was a stumbling block. Uh, Fabrizio Romano, this is an hour ago. Leo Messi, Barcelona were planning for official announcement before Gamper all agreed, uh, all agreed since days. Then today they had new problems in the process to extend the contract. Issues are confirmed. Barca and Messi will continue their talks to resolve the situation. That escalated very, very quickly to Barcelona just releasing a statement that says, well, 1.33 p.m. Thursday, August 5th. So uh, this is incredible. Leo Messi not staying at FC Barcelona. Despite club and player reaching an agreement and their clear intention to sign a new contract today, this cannot happen because of financial and structural obstacles. I'm Mm -hmm. reading from FC Barcelona's website. Despite FC Barcelona and Lionel Messi having reached an agreement and the clear intention of both parties to sign a contract today, this cannot happen because of financial and structural obstacles. This time they've written in parentheses, Spanish Liga regulations. As a result of this situation, situation, Messi shall not be staying on at FC Barcelona. Both parties deeply regret that the wishes of the player and the club were ultimately not fulfilled. FC Barcelona wholeheartedly express its gratitude to the player for his contribution to the aggrandizement of the club and wishes him all the very best for the future in his personal and professional life. This is, um, this is absolutely stunning. Um, Barcelona, this cannot happen because of financial and structural obstacles. So obviously the deal and the restructuring of the deal that they did um, that they cooked up a month ago to to keep Messi and stay within the Spanish football finance regulations hasn't worked. There's some issue with that. Maybe they they asked for for Messi to take less at the start of the deal than he had already agreed to. We know the deal is appears to be back ended quite a lot towards the end of the contract, uh, where he would get more money. Apparently that doesn't work, um, and they you know they don't. They don't say financial reasons. They explicitly state uh, financial and structural reasons. And they put in parentheses Spanish legal regulations. So this is amazing. It's utterly jaw-dropping to me from reading through this statement that both the club and the player wanted this marriage to continue. And La Liga policies will not allow that to happen. That is hard for me to wrap my mind around. Yes. Uh, I understand the state of Barcelona's financial structure is dis- clearly is disastrous, as we're now finding out, maybe even more than whatever we thought previously. Um, but I, I just, I don't know. It's hard for me to understand that they couldn't find a way, that there was no amount. I, I guess you can't gut... If it truly was that we're going to need to clear 
13 roster spots from this team to make room for one guy. Uh, I suppose I understand Barcelona's reluctance to do that for a 34 year old player, Mm. but I just, I don't know. I just, he's still near the top of his game. He was probably the best player in the world over this him or, or, you know, in the top three over this past 12 months. Um, I don't, it's just, I can't believe it. I can't believe that there was no way to make it work in term from, from a legal perspective when both parties wanted it to happen. uh, It's amazing. So the athletics, Luke Brown has done the, the, the usual little thing. Uh, that the athletic tend to do was where they ask a few questions about a big story. Um, and one of the questions they asked is, could this be Barcelona putting pressure on La Liga? Potentially La Liga recently released the new salary cap limits for Spanish top flight teams and Barcelona were hard, were hit the hardest with the COVID-19 pandemic affecting income. Barcelona have seen their wage limit fall from 671 million euros last season to 328.7 million euros. Thursday shock announcement could be therefore a case of Barcelona putting pressure on La Liga by indicating that La Liga's biggest commercial draw could be on his way out of the country because of the club's inability to afford him. Equally, this saga has been drawn out for over a year and Messi may finally be on his way out of the club that raised him. So now the question becomes, okay, let's... So I guess to read that is to suggest that while the statement says this is over, it's not necessarily over that, you know, Barcelona is basically pressuring La Liga to bend over backwards to help them make this work. And by the way, I, I would say that it is probably in everyone's best interest. It is in the league, La Liga's best interest as well for Lionel Messi to remain a player in Spain. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not their job to contort their rules to fit the agenda of a single club. So, at this moment, as it stands now, maybe that is the tack Barcelona is taking, but I would not anticipate La Liga changing. They're, they've had a month, essentially, where we've been sitting here waiting for Lionel Messi to sign his contract, where whatever legalities needed to be fixed haven't happened. So I'm operating under the assumption that he's gone now. Yes. And it's time to start thinking about po- what the ramifications are of this moving forward. Obviously, for Barcelona, it's catastrophic. Um and you wonder, okay, so where can he go? And just thinking about it off the top of my head, it feels like there's really only two realistic options. It feels mm. like it's either Manchester City or PSG. Well, Manchester City is complicated because, as we're going to talk about, Jack Grealish is nearing a 100 million pound contract with them. Now, maybe Lionel Messi suddenly becoming available and wanting to potentially reunify with his old manager and Pep Guardiola, that may throw everything into flux. But don't forget, this is a club that is still under the spotlight of financial fair play. Yep. That is, has, uh, was part of an ongoing court case in the United Kingdom, which was leaked to the Daily Mail two weeks ago about what City have done to try and subvert and get around financial fair play, allegedly. Well, look, JJ, they were talking about a summer of signing Grealish for $100 million and Kane for perhaps a little bit more than that. So if Barcelona, if Manchester City were prepared to spend over $200 million on those two players, then it stands to reason that they could spend, what, what would it take to sign Messi? Well, he's, on a, he's a free agent, so he's a free it wouldn't agent. take anything. Well, just yeah. take player wages. The wages would have to be factored in as well. So he's he is free to negotiate with other clubs. He has been for 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 several months now. Um, I don't know. I feel like this may have more to play out. We just had the the CVC uh, big. Per, per, um, I mean, how would that? 
How about you're in the venture capital business? You are CVC and you've bought the rights to La Liga or not bought the rights to La Liga, bought a, a, a slice of La Liga. And now you discover that the, the most marketable product in the league is gone with, within two, two or three days of that being announced. That is, that's incredible. So what happens is the ramifications for this are, are enormous. Um, and so you wonder, so th there's the messy side of it of where does he go? I mean, am I missing any? Is it Man, Man City, PSG, and then like complete and total wild card factors such as Argentina, MLS, Qatar? But like, he's not, I, I say he's not going to Qatar. I don't know that. I would doubt it. I would doubt. I think he, he go himself. Play, go play for his old pal Javi. <laughs> I think he himself feels he has miles left in the tank. He does. Uh, yeah. Uh, let me think. You know, Chelsea and Manchester United are the only other clubs really with that, that kind of mega wealth. I mean, and look, they've got structures of their own that they have to stay inside of. And Juventus. Italy. Um, Juve, I, mean, I don't know quite what their finances are coming out of COVID. That is the only one in Italy that is a real runner for me. Uh, Inter or not. <laughs> Inter are trying no, to... No, no, they're shedding. They're shedding. They're not looking to bring on uh, what would be an astronomical, the biggest payroll in the league outside of Ronaldo. Um, man, this is crazy. And, and, and the thing about this is this is going to develop over the next few days. Uh, now, just because Barris put that statement out doesn't mean that we won't be back here next week saying he's back. They dodged a bullet there. They found a way. I don't know. But this is a very, this feels, this still feels fluid right now. I'm just so curious. So if Messi really wanted to return to Barcelona, I'm so curious how low his wages would have needed to go to fit into whatever uh, guardrails there are that are in place for Barcelona to not break rules. Hmm. Like, I, I wonder if it was just completely untenable, like if it was just not even close, or if Messi needed to get to a number that would still put him among you know, the higher earners in this sport, uh, just not the highest, not top two, top three, but maybe like a top 10 earner. And maybe, maybe he wasn't willing to do that. Maybe he's at the, this is his last big contract. Potentially he might still think if I'm, I'm going to get what I'm worth. And if I can't get it here, I'll go somewhere else for it. I don't know. I'm and, reading, I'm reading again, uh, Luke Brown in the athletic. So what he is saying is the, the bones of the agreement for Messi to carry, carry on at Barcelona have been clear to see for weeks now. He and his father, Jorge, had seemingly accept, accepted a new five-year contract at 50% of his previous salary and for the deal to be arranged in a way that would see him receive financial remuneration in the final years of the contract when Barcelona's finances would, in theory, be stable again. However, the real difficult decisions required for Barcelona to meet La Liga's strict economic controls for the 21-22 season and for Messi to be registered again as their player have proved excep exceptionally difficult to overcome. It could be the case, Andrew, that Barca have wound themselves into such a mess, such a financial mess, and are so far off what they need to do. Well, I mean, we, we, heard, we heard about them not being able to sign potentially Sergio Aguero, that he wouldn't be able to, to sign on. Um, and I guess they've just decided that this can't work. Um, this is amazing. Absolutely stunning news. Sports Illustrated, uh, Avi Creditor of Sports Illustrated has a story up here. 
Um, shedding a little bit more on it. He says uh, Barcelona needs to shed more salary from its books to be compliant with La Liga's salary cap regulations and to be able to register Messi ahead of the new season. We all, we knew all that. And even though Messi is prepared to accept a significant salary reduction, he's still not going to sign for peanuts. Even with an injection of cash expected to be available following La Liga's $3.2 billion deal with the private equity firm mm. that was announced on Wednesday, there remains concerns. According to Spanish outlet Sport, Barcelona doesn't trust that the money will actually be made available and hasn't been factoring it into its calculations. That's, that's, that's interesting. That's bizarre. Why, why wouldn't they factor in? Why wouldn't they factor that in? I don't, I don't know. Wow. JJ, I'm, I'm, I'm not often at a loss for words. I just never thought that the messy Barcelona relationship would end with both parties wanting it to continue. I just never, I would have thought, like anytime in American sports, whenever you hear like, you know, an NBA team wants to sign three megastars and you look at their salary cap and you're like, uh, I don't think it's possible. It's always possible. Yeah. They always are finding ways to shed salary. We got to cut X number of play. Like I'm just not used to seeing these things not happen uh, because of legal restraints. Like, I just feel like there's always like when you're talking about players of that caliber that want to go to a place uh, or, or in this case, remain with the place. I've never, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like blanking here, but I can't think of many times when I've seen something of this nature. Uh, I'm, I'm stunned by it. Um, who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe a week from now, we'll be sitting here saying they found a way. La Liga conformed. Um, Messi was willing to bring his salary down even further. I don't know, but uh, it's, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking. And if it is in fact true that this is it, then my God, what an era we're bringing the curtain down on here. Yeah. And it was, a, you know, an extremely terse and brief and lacking in plaudits uh, club statement that was made, <laughs> wasn't it? This uh, is the great, yeah. the greatest, yes. here's the greatest player you've ever had. And it just, uh, it just sounded a little bit dry. I was expecting a bit more from Barcelona, if this is indeed the end. Yeah, it's hard to tell who they're mad at. I, I get the sense that Barcelona is mad at La Liga, but is it yeah. La Liga? How much of this is La Liga's fault? Like I said, they don't, La Liga is not here to conform to what you need in any given moment they have their rules it's it's down to barcelona's own recklessness i suppose with their spending from the past that's coming back to bite them now but um fc barcelona wholeheartedly expresses its gratitude to the player to the player the player hmm. for his contribution to the aggrandizement of the club and wishes him all the very best for the future in his personal and professional life you're right it is weirdly cold Oof. It is. At least you're right. You can only the come player. away. You can only come away from reading this with with the conclusion that they're not happy. That something might have happened with him as well. That is, is maybe it's not just about La Liga. Maybe they. I don't know. It's all. I feel like it's not safe necessarily to just throw out like wild conspiracies. Um, I'm sure we'll find out more. I, I, I gather every reporter in an, in all of Europe is is working on this story right now. Yeah, like, unfortunately, with, with our, our podcasting right now, this is the show. And there will be another show after that. But <laughs> we will. This is what we know right now. This is all we have. Amazing. Hit the well, music. 
Yeah. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Now on to the rest of Caught Offside. Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside. Suburbs of New York City, an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Hey, man. How are you? I've been better. That's the... uh... That's the truth of it. I'm hoping you'll bring some some cheeriness to the podcast now. I'm oh, looking no. forward to the pod as always, but uh, I do feel it's dangerous to leave the burden for cheer on your uh, rather uh, broad shoulders. First of all, how dare you? I am a beacon of light in everyone's lives. Uh, you have to elaborate. Yeah, why, I, why I, are you saying these things? Uh, listeners, uh, some listeners will know um, because some of them are in, in the physiotherapy industry and they, they knew I hurt my back about... 18 months, two years ago, and I've kind of been dealing with it and rehabbing it and trying to get back to some, some kind of semblance of normality or what it was like before. And I, I thought I saw light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I felt in good shape. As you know, Andrew, I've lost 30 pounds since before Christmas, feeling good. And uh, it appears as if I've hurt it again. And that has uh, pushed me into um, the absolute depths of depression. And you, you know, Andrew, I'm not I'm clearly not a professional athlete. I think that's been established, but I just kind of got an insight. Imagine for them when they come to the end of their careers and they have debilitating pain and, and things that they can't do anymore um, down to, you know, down to the careers and the professions they had. Um, I've only got, you know, it's given me a, a scintilla of, a, of an insight into what that must be like. It's brutal. Well, I'm sorry you're dealing with that. Back injuries are not fun. No, there's no getting um, around it. I'm hoping, but, but this happened to you once before, and it was temporary, right? So, right. Hopefully, it's it's a similar thing. I know that's there's not much consolation in that when you're going through it, but yeah. And and I'm one of those people that when I'm miserable, you can't talk to me. No, I can do this podcast. I was gonna, well, this should be fun. No, it will be fun. No, this is literally the, you're not the beacon of light. This podcast is the lighthouse in the darkness of my back condition. And I see the light and I'm, but I am a big part of this podcast. So you are kind of saying that I am in fact, a large beacon of light. Yeah. You're no, you're, you're more the lighthouse keeper. You're in an administrative role. The lighthouse brings the beauty. You are the pencil pusher. You know what? I'll take it. (laughs) Um, well here, let's get into it. JJ. I'm looking forward to this podcast quite a bit. Um, despite the fact that a good portion of it will be dealing in rumor, which is a thing that we don't love. Um, but some of those rumors are beginning to crystallize. So we will get into, uh, we will get into those things. Very excited too, because JJ, I think we're going to be speaking with Alexi Lalas coming up shortly to rehash what has been a fascinating American summer between the CONCACAF Nations League triumph into the uh, non-qualification for the Olympics disaster, into the Gold Cup triumph, into the U.S. women's soccer team and their issues at this Olympics. They just got the bronze medal earlier today. So there is like this summer was unbelievably eventful and we're only about a month and a half or maybe even less than that away from when world cup qualifying begins. So there's so many American soccer issues to kind of rehash as the summer closes for them. So we thought he'd be such a good person to speak with. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. It's been a while since we've had Alexi on the show, probably since we had him in studio. I think I think that was the last time he he has responded to us via social media on things we said about Olympic qualifying, but uh, yeah. we haven't we haven't we haven't sat down and uh, and chatted through things in a while. Yeah, um, 
so I, I really I look forward to speaking with him because uh, he's such a good dude, and that should be a fun conversation. And um, of course, we have also a big mailbag at the end. You have shared the mailbag with me. There are certain questions I'm excited about. I think it's gonna. I think it's really gonna be a nice, fun mailbag to dive into. So there's a lot to do on this podcast. Let's get started, though, with some of the biggest stories from the day as the Premier League season, JJ, is like, what is it like a week and a half away? This is, I'm not ready for this. No, I'm not mentally prepared for it either. And, um, you know, this the pandemic has just absolutely squished this calendar to the point of, like, I know there's people out there who can't wait for the return of club football. And in a way, I can't either. But also in another more accurate way, I could do with another month. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. At least like two weeks. But no, no, no. Here we go. Uh, it, so I guess a week from now, we'll be diving into our EPL preview podcast, which are always uh, a good time as well. So with the Premier League kind of uh, at the doorstep, there are major issues to confront right now in this league, all of which essentially coming in the transfer window and the transfer rumor department. So let's talk about the first one here, because this is the one that appears the most hope, high profile move that appears closest to also being done. Mm. Uh, that is Jack Grealish going to Manchester City for 100 million pounds. Now, at the time of recording this, it's 10 a.m. Eastern time in the United States. It's not official yet. No, every single not. thing, every single thing you read makes it sound like it is imminent. Um, so in talking about it, we're going to kind of treat it that way. If things well, Fabrizio, dramatically Fabrizio, change. Yeah, he gave it the here we go, right? He, he Fabrizio Romano gave it the here we go. So that's that's uh, that's the, the brand of it's going to happen. Just wait. That's the closest thing you can get to the guy actually holding up the jersey in the tweet. Mm hmm. But here we go. Uh, Grealish, Man City, if it does happen, 100 million is what they're saying. Uh, and I'm just curious, a player of his stature, we, you know, people who listen to this podcast know what we think of him. I mean, we both rate him very highly. Uh, does this change your opinion of City? Does this take them to an even different echelon than whatever we viewed them as before? Uh, I actually don't think that it does. I think their title contenders are title favorites without Jack Grealish. It's just adding a unique talent to an already galaxy of stars. It's giving them unbelievable depth, further depth than they had. Um, but, but like, you know, there is a grimness to, to, the, to the transfer. You know, here is this absolute powerhouse, this money machine, um, and they're going to spend again and again, another team is going to be robbed of, of a talent. And, you know, I know that's the way the market are you, works. Are you new to this league? No, no, no. That's, okay. that, is the, that is the way the market works. But um, I, I'm, just, I'm just so curious about this, Andrew. I, I, you know, City aren't just buying Jack Grealish. They're also going to break a structure that they've had where they, you know, they spend on, on players. Yes, of course they do. They spend truckloads to get them where they are right now but they do it in a certain manner and there's there's you know there's a, there's a number in their head and that number is rarely it's never been a hundred million and so they're going to spend a hundred million on Jack Grealish and I just wonder is this a good fit for Pep Guardiola is this a good fit for Manchester City is it a good fit for Grealish and I honestly right now I, I don't think it is why um why, why well, would he not be a good fit for them? And why would he, like, I think he's, well, he, in some ways, well, I think he almost fits nicely what it is they like to do. No, he doesn't, though. Um, 
he, he fits their their profile of a player because he is a an excellent player. But other than that, like you think of Pep Guardiola and young players, and you think of Pep Guardiola and Manchester City players, and and what is demanded of them, Andrew? Like you don't think of Jack Grealish as this conformist Pep bot who will be in that certain position who will uh, give himself up for the kind of pressing and the kind of um, closing down that Manchester City do. Um, I'm not saying that can't be coached into him, but it's, it's like, he's this free spirit, Andrew. He's a throwback. You know, he's, he's got the hair slicked back. He's got the Alice band, the socks down around the ankles, which reminds you of like the free spirits of the 1970s and 1980s. Um, He plays with a kind of an Elan and a, and a, a joy that I'm not saying there's no joy in city's football. There is, but it is joy in a very conformist fashion. And Jonathan Wilson made this point, And it's one that's been in my head too. If Garrett Southgate deemed he wasn't a good choice to execute his plan in the summer, what does that mean for a better coach with a more intricate plan in Guardiola, you know, to, to, to break all records, to get this guy in, I'm just fascinated about a who'll miss out. B, where does he play? Is he more central? Will he drift off to the left? Either um, one. I think that that versatility actually helps him. Yeah. Um, pressing, that kind of work rate that's expected. I, I'm just, I'm not saying it can't work. There's, there's, there's just so many good players at that club and such a good manager and system that it's hard to see City being, you know, diminished. They're not going to be diminished by this signing. I'm just, I, I don't know. It's just something doesn't fit. The, the profile of the player and the profile, the football profile of the club doesn't fit for me. Um, yeah, look, it's hard to argue with that until we actually see any of this in action. That wasn't that didn't really strike me when I saw this move was going to be happening. How could it not, though? Like, I, I want I because want to I think bit- highly of him because I, I for one, I just think highly of him as, as a player where I think he can. I don't think he's a one trick pony. Like I think that he can do a lot of things really, really well. He's mm. an elite passer, which is obviously a hallmark of Pep's any Pep system. He's, you know, we talk about his ability to draw fouls in, in precarious spots. So he'll, he'll continue to do all those things. I don't know. I don't, I, I've never seen him as a guy who's not willing to work. Like, I don't not, no, like lack of about, work rate is not a thing I've ever associated no, with we, him. Well, don't say work rate. It's to work in this particular precise fashion. You know, well, maybe that hasn't been asked of him. It just would surprise it me. Will be. It, it, it's right. never not been but asked I'm, of any city player. Right. And, I'm, but I'm saying at Villa previously, like maybe he he's been asked to do one thing. So at Manchester so, City, he'll be asked to do maybe something a little bit different. We don't even know yet. Yeah, we um, don't know yet. I, I, it's just in my head. I, I, I just I can't figure it out. I cannot imagine. I know Manchester City have have a wealth of cash. Uh, obviously we all know that, but like you just said, this is not necessarily a hallmark of theirs to go out and spend that kind of money on a player. So with that being the case, I simply cannot imagine that they would do that now on this player. If they did not have a plan for him or believe that he could fit into what it is that they want him to do. Yeah. uh, I'm sure there's a plan. Everything seems to have been planned at city from, you know, from top to bottom. But I just think that, um, I suppose I could put it another way. Will we see, like, is this the end of that, of the Jack Grealish we've known from Aston Villa? Almost certainly. The kind of player he is, um, the kind of roaming, like I said, almost romantic figure from the past. You know, there's so few players like him. Who is he always compared to? He's compared to players like Gascoigne, you know, those kind of dribblers. 
uh, low center of gravity, all, all those things. And it, I mean, Pep can obviously uh, fit him into the system, but at what loss to, to the things we've loved about Jack really so far? Yeah, I guess we'll see. I don't know. I, I feel like we've seen players at City continue to, to play beautiful football and to do those kinds of things. I don't think that they're necessarily, you know, I know Pep has a system that he likes to play, but I don't know if he's asking some of his superstar players to be robots. Uh, and I think Grealish the same. I, I don't, don't think, I don't think he'll be asked to be a robot. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I do wonder that, um, you know, <laughs> I've got this image in my head. There's always, I see Pep like, you know, intensely explaining something to Raheem Sterling, you know, and Raheem's face is always kind of like a slightly frazzled expression. And we've seen it with uh, Joshua Kimmich too, um, on the field, this kind of, you know, arm around the shoulder yet, you know, this kind of aggressive love and aggressive learning, aggressive education for the players. And um, when I, when I, when I see Jack really, just, I just see a confused face, but we I mean, I, I'm thinking about their fronts. What would you say? Their front six, some kind of combo of, I mean, if Grealish, let's say he plays somewhere, maybe it's hard to think about what they might look like with the Harry Kane stuff still up in the air. But right now, Foden, Sterling, Grealish, De Bruyne, Mares, who am I forgetting? Like up front. Well, or you're not. In, you're, in Gab, Gabriel, well, Gabriel Jesus. Uh, Aguero's Aguero's no, gone, no, no. He's, so he's, yeah. So you don't have that that center forward. Um, you know we saw Kevin De Bruyne often not leading the line, but you know playing in that kind of role. Um, it's the, it's the I, false nine. Yes. Um. So yeah, I mean that's another question as well. Someone's going to lose out there. I, I and again that's another thing I can't I I, I struggle to envision as well. You know and, and don't Gundogan. forget Okay, Gundogan. He's the one I was forgetting. Gundogan in that side as well. Um, that's, uh, I mean, will we see Sterling, Foden and Grealish regularly in the same side? I don't know. It's, it's actually, it's fascinating. I, I can't wait to see what he does. That's one of the exciting things about the season for coming forward. And I suppose, you know, just in your head, trying to, to, to figure out the player and the player he's been and the player he's going to be at Manchester city. That's, that's what I'm grappling with. Uh, meanwhile, the club that he is potentially leaving behind Aston Villa are like, it's funny because none of this is done. And yet Villa are certainly carrying on as though it is, uh, they are like ma- wasting no time and making moves to try to compensate for the player. They just lost as Danny Ings has gone in now to Aston Villa, leaving Southampton. Um, what a move, a, a great move. I would say for Villa. Um, I wonder in situations like this, when a club like Villa, loses a player like Grealish, gets a massive sum of money. And, you know, obviously it's going to, it's going to hurt them, but you wonder, okay, if this is managed properly, can there be a net gain here for Villa? And so a Mm. couple of things that I was wondering about with that. So for, for, for one, um, not having Grealish obviously hurts. Sky Sports' Gerard Brand wrote this about Grealish last season. He said, the three months without Grealish last season were a worrying case study. Villa won just 21% of their games without him and won 54% of their games with him. Um, these are tough to figure out because I, ultimately, I think I tend to fall on the side of several good players don't make up for the loss of one great player. I know that there are, you can probably find examples of both, but generally that's the way I feel like Everton did not see any bump at all, really, when they 
from the Lukaku money when they lost him. That was that was a loss for them. Uh, Tottenham when they lost Gareth Bale. Sure, a couple you know Erickson and Lamella came from that, but ultimately it took Tottenham a little while. They they had to stumble into a youth academy player and Harry Kane becoming their greatest goal scorer ever uh, to get out of you know the post Bale rut. It wasn't really anything necessarily with all that money that they got that helped them out of it. So ultimately, I think losing a great player uh, is obviously it's tough. And I, I don't know how many good players it takes to make up for that. Now, I will say Danny Ings isn't just some good player. Uh, that's a great start for them. Leon Bailey coming um, in as well from Bayer Leverkusen. Like this is these are are nice moves that I think they're making to try to make up for this impending loss. I know what you're saying. I, I, I do get the point that you're making, but uh, I was. Danny Ings was those one of those, you know, shock signings. It's like there was no drawn out anything. There was no rumor. It's like, boom, next thing the announcement is made. And, uh, and I like Danny Ings, but you're buying Danny Ings at 29, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's just, just think about it for a second. 29, 12 goals and four assists last season. That's a drop off of 10 goals from the previous season. And a thing that he suffered with throughout his career, he suffered with injury a little bit more last season. Um, and they're paying what? 41 million dollars i mean was it i thought i'm trying to do i don't know the conversion rate it was 25 million pounds right right so Uh, that seems like that seems like a reasonable amount for a for a proven goal scorer i think i think in a depressed market with with covid and everything i think that's i think that's a lot of money and i'm not sure about that one now leon bailey uh, for uh, for a similar price range, that is a that's a move I can get behind. That one makes a little bit more more sense to me. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know about Ings. Like Ings and Watkins, like they've you know they they are building an attack and they are building in some depth. So in that sense, it's a good signing, definitely. Yeah, and they're not done. I mean, there was uh, reports of uh, who was it from Norwich City that they were looking at Cantwell, um, and that's moving who, who closer. Would, who would? who would be a brilliant young signing, like a superb young signing. Um, so look, I, I, yeah, I, the Danny Ings, I mean, we just have to, to factor in that Danny Ings may suffer with injuries. He may, this drop-off, we have to see if the drop-off in goals and production is, was just injury-related or whether this is the, a general decline of a career as he approaches 30. I don't know. But, uh, but Villa are certainly, you know, <laughs> they're preparing as if that money is going to get spent very, very quickly. I think that since his time at Liverpool, I don't think the injury situation has been necessarily no. what you're saying. No, last season is when it, re- when it started. He had a few niggling injuries. So- certainly not. Look, he's he's played over the last two seasons. Uh, he's played sixty nine out of a possible seventy six Premier League games. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's very uh, good. So I I don't know now that I still look at him and say that's a guy that I'm 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 taking injuries into account that he's going to miss you know ten ten games this season. I don't know. I think we'll see, but I don't think what's happened over the last two years for him is is necessary an indication that no, he's no, going to no. get hurt. No, I'm not saying that, but uh, it just seems like a you know a lot of money uh, for a 29 year old who will be 30 next season. That's all I'm saying. And then finally, one other one to deal with here, and that is Harry Kane. Uh, this has turned even uglier than when we last spoke just a few days ago, when we kind of said, okay, he hadn't shown up for training that day, but Football 365 and other outlets were reporting that that was planned. If he didn't show up the following day, then we can have a conversation. Well, he did not, and then he did not again, and he has not again. And it is now getting increasingly ugly. Uh, I feel like I haven't really, I feel like I've kind of been avoiding this because uh, I, I, 
I don't know. There's this like emotional part of me that hasn't wanted to really confront this but yet. Like, there was, can I can I speak in your favor for a second? We were in the sure. joy in the middle of the Euros, and well, that, you didn't want you didn't. That is want what to- I was. That is what I was about to say. Is that there were other things happening in this sport that allowed me to be distracted from the ugliness of this situation, whether it was the Euros, the Gold Cup, the Olympics, uh, whatever. Uh, but now, like here we are, the season's in a week and a half, and there is a war brewing between the club and one of their all-time greatest and most beloved players. And so I, I feel like I can kind of no longer avoid this, no longer take like a, a position here. And ultimately, look, I am not, I am not a hot takesman. All right. Like that's just not, <laughs> my, that's not my style. Is that, is that like a modern day woodsman? We know well, you're like, a woodsman. I, look, and, and I respect people that are people that can just like look at an issue, bang, that guy's wrong. That guy's right. Moving on. Like there are people who are great at that. And, you know, I don't know, that's just not necessarily, that's just not necessarily my style. Um, and so this unfortunately kind of falls into that category for me. Uh, I look at this and I say, this is simple. There are no good guys here. And it's one of the things that makes this situation particularly frustrating. There is no one that I can root for in this. I say no good guys because look, the tack that Kane is taking is going to do zero to change Daniel Levy's mind. Nothing, Nothing. not 1%. Will this change Daniel Levy's mind? Harry Kane not showing up to training. Doesn't matter. Um, But what it will do for Kane is tarnish his reputation with this fan base that has been obsessed with him for years. That is ugly. And that is sad. Uh, He's got three years remaining on his contract. Right. That is no position of leverage. Tottenham are willing to sell you, but the club you want to go to is not meeting the asking price. And by the way, after seeing Grealish go to that same club for a hundred million, then no, Tottenham are not wrong for slapping 150 million pound price tag on arguably, I said, arguably the world's best striker. They're not wrong for doing it. They should be holding out. Like I said, with three years left on a contract, that's what you should be asking for, for a player of his caliber who means that much to this club. But By the same token, I also cannot root for Daniel Levy here if what is being said about this gentleman's agreement is in fact true. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me finish, and then you can tell me all the reasons I'm wrong. Kane has given, he has given everything to this club. He has been by far their best player for a generation, one of the greatest players in their history. Depending on who you listen to, some say he's their greatest since Jimmy Greaves. All he's ever asked from this club was that they essentially back him and keep momentum moving forward, and yet... When they were in a position of absolute strength, they chose to sign no one. Everyone's talking about the six-year deal that Kane signed in June of 2018. You're right. In in hindsight for him, probably naive. Shouldn't have done it. It's why he has three years left now. So they locked him in in June of 2018, fully on board. Harry Kane is all in. Just keep this thing headed in the right direction. That's all he asked. So what was the very first thing they did after signing him? Literally nothing. That was the ensuing months where the transfer window was became the first in Premier League history where a team signed zero players. That's what they did after signing Kane to a six-year deal. They signed no one. And so we look ahead. The ripple effect became what? They fired a manager that Kane loved, hired a controversial one out of total desperation. It didn't work. And now the club's trajectory is clearly downward, which was always Kane's biggest thing. So no one should be surprised that he wants out. Now, you can be surprised by the way he's going about it, but to be totally honest, I'm not, I'm not even shocked by that because all I heard from people leading up to this, whenever I'd say that this was going to get messy, all I heard was, no, Kane's not that sort of guy. But no one is that sort of guy until they are. He hasn't been in this situation. Now he is. He wants out. Daniel Levy's the guy he's dealing with. This is the tact he's taking. It's not going to work. That's his flaw. But nothing surprises me anymore when players want out. And the problem with Kane, and I'm going to get 
sappy here for a sec, but just bear with me. The problem with Kane is that this is too emotional. The he's one of our own chants means something to this fan base. Harry Kane is not the sort of thing that just happens to Tottenham of all clubs. He is the living embodiment of the complete and total opposite as to what Spursy is. He is a nobody from within Tottenham's own training academy who turned out to be one of the greatest goal scorers of all time. That does not happen to this club. He means something different to Tottenham, and it's hard for people outside of the club to see that. And so here we are in one of those situations where we're reminded again that it's the people who you love the most who make you the angriest. There's not like a word in the English language, JJ, that can describe how much I love my kids. There's also not a word in the English language that can describe how frustrated they can make me at times. I know that's a grand comparison between Harry Kane and my own children, but the but to a sports fan, the logic checks out. And this is the reason fans side with ownership over players, because we don't love owners. They're faceless billionaires. We've never spent time rooting for them, but we love players. So when they do something we don't like, it hurts. And that hurt translates to anger, which is what Kane is getting right now. I've been on Twitter, Tottenham Twitter. It's a vile place right now. And it sucks. Oh, is it really? It's ugly. It's ugly. He is not if he's when he sets foot in that stadium, it's going to be ugly. Um, and it sucks because I don't want to hate this guy. He's been at the center of more great moments in my life as a soccer fan than any player I can remember, U.S. soccer included. So, yeah, I'm mad at him because I want him to stay. I don't want him giving the fans the finger by skipping out on training, which is essentially what he's doing. But I also think that to a certain extent, when Daniel Levy is reneging on an agreement that he made, a gentleman's agreement, there's no reason for Harry Kane to go on acting like a gentleman. So, yeah, I'm not happy about the situation. Uh, And I know this will make me unpopular with Tottenham fans, but I am not going to be a fan who boos Harry Kane if or when he returns. I, I, I very much uh, hope that everyone now is imagining Andrew in his underpants and T-shirt at 7.30 a.m. downstairs in his house shouting boo at Harry Kane on his own as he sips his co- coffee in the morning. Um, John Nicholson is good on this, Andrew, I think. Um, this is his one of his lines from his piece on uh, Football 365 about Kane. You committed to play for Spurs no matter what for six long years. A stupid decision, admittedly. And it is entirely within the rights of the employer to hold you to that. What is the point of a contract otherwise? Can you imagine the outrage if Levy and Tottenham didn't stick to their side of the contract or wanted to get out of their commitments for the last three years of his deal? There was no clause in the contract which said either party can do what they want whenever they want. Now, this is what he finishes with. And this is probably the the truest point of all about how Kane is handling this. He basically says, go to work, put your head down and City and Levy will come to an agreement, which, you know, at at some point and eventually they will. That is going to happen. And Kane should just come back in, honor the contract, work as hard as he can and let Levy get as much money as he possibly can for his asset. His most prized asset at the moment in Spurs outside of uh, that massive stadium they've built. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Like I said, the tack that Kane is taking is unfortunate because it's the fans and and Kane's. Well, I don't know how Kane's teammates feel about this. They might they might understand how he's feeling or where he's coming from. I I don't know. Um, But it's the fans that are bearing the brunt of this right now, which is the sad part. Um, So, yeah, like obviously I hate it. I mean, I, I think of other controversial Tottenham moves in the past like Berbatov and you know he didn't bail even Modric who was desperate yeah. who was desperate to leave um and do I don't ever think- remember any of them skipping training uh, the, the only did- problem is that I just feel like I feel like Levy is getting a pass here people hear the term gentleman's agreement and they kind of laugh it off um almost like oh that you know that's business but like I'm I don't know I'm not call me naive fine I'll be naive 
like I can't just give Levy a pass if that is actually a conversation. If Daniel Levy sat down with the greatest player that he has had the pleasure of overseeing during his time here, and like I said, maybe the greatest they've had since Greaves, a guy who's come up through their system, who probably, if he wanted to, could have been doing this maybe b- before that contract was signed. We knew early on, after year two of Kane, what he was. Uh, so he could have done this, and, and he chose not to. He's he's been a good a, a great servant to this club for these years. Um, and so I can't just like snuff off Levy going back on his word. Like to me, like but, there, Andrew, there's something so like what Kane is doing is snake like in its own right, but he's also dealing with a snake as well in Levy. I I, I think uh, you've got to you've got to factor in that Levy has people he answers to. There are people above Daniel Levy at Tottenham Hotspur PLC, and they they want the best possible return for, the, for their player, or, or if they can't get it, they want their player to remain. And a verbalized, non-ink, non-drawn-up gentleman's agreement means nothing in that world. It means absolutely nothing to them. And so they are going to, I mean, they don't want Daniel Levy just reneging on things. Levy's going to work this the way he's going to work it, and he's going to try and get as much money as possible. In the meantime, Actually, this is the question. Do you expect Kane to be a training tomorrow? Uh, the report was Friday is when he'll yes. be back. And he's saying that this is Kane was saying that this is being blown out of proportion. <laughs> uh, How can he think that? How can he, what, the what only way he can the only way he can think that is if this was always supposed to be the way it was, which if that's if that is the case, then he needed to have like he needed to have said something. He has to address this. Mm. Um the fact that he hasn't, you know, he, it is what it is. He's on strike right now, or he's voicing, you know, this is his way of letting the club know that he's furious and is demanding to leave. Um, maybe he thinks this is giving him leverage in some way, but it's, it's just not all it's doing is, is damaging his reputation, which is again, which is the sad part here. Like, I mean, you know, Grealish was showing up at Aston Villa training right up through the end of, of his situation. So, you know, for Kane to not do the same, it's, I don't know. I hope I hope he's listening to the right people. Um, By the way, Villa Villa Twitter was absolutely wild the last few weeks, uh, and or the last few days with uh, with people, you know, because the social media outlets in the clubs, uh, the departments are putting out videos, and a lot of them fe- feature Jack Grealish and um, him in long conversation, you know, him in long conversations with coaching staff and friends at the training ground. So you can imagine what this was. This was just grist to the mill for Aston Villa fans. Like he's staying, look at him, look at the way he's talking to, to that coach or look at, look how happy he is. You know, it's been, it's been, uh, it hasn't been like that obviously for Harry Kane. It, it's no. been, it's been toxic with Grealish too, but in a different way. Not like this, not like no. this. And again, I don't want everything I said there. I know how it's going to come across. Um, I don't want it to sound like I'm, I'm cool with Kane in this. Um, I just, I guess my biggest thing is that I don't want what's happening to Kane. I don't want Levy's actions to get lost in the shuffle because I'm not okay with how he's gone about this either. Mm. Essentially that is my, that's how I feel on it. You're right. I'm a full gentleman's agreement. Ha ha. What an absolute rube. But I just feel like when you're doing that with Harry Kane, it's different. Like he's not just some guy. And, and when you come to, when you, when you say something to him, it has to mean more. And I think for Levy to have, if, if that is what happened, I'm sure one day it'll all come out. Um, I just think that is so, that is such poor form to treat one of your players like that. One of your greatest players in the club's history. Just, I don't know, did not sit well with me. I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's take a break. 
I'm going to, I'm going to settle down. We'll all settle down and we're going to settle in for what should be a, a really fun chat coming up next with Alexi Lalas. Cause there's so much to digest from the last couple months of us soccer, both men's women's uh, this should be really, really fun. I'm looking forward to this quite a bit. Hope you are as well. Don't go anywhere. Alexi Lalas next. Oh, back now on caught offside. JJ, we teased this. We're so excited about it because this last, well, I was going to say last month, but it's really been more than that from the CONCACAF Nations League final through the under 23 Olympic qualifying through the last month with the Gold Cup. U.S. soccer has dominated this summer from a conversation perspective. Two trophies over the rivals. Mexico, it has been a very, very fun couple months following this team. And now to talk a little bit more about it and kind of put a bow on this summer as we transition from the summer into World Cup qualifying, one of our favorite people to speak with on this show, U.S. soccer legend. Of course, you've been watching him as an analyst on Fox. Alexi Lalas back on the program now. Alexi, what's up, man? How are you? Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. Uh, as you mentioned, this this summer of soccer rolls on, and whether it was Euros to Copa America to Gold Cup to Nations League to Olympics to everything, we got the MLS uh, All-Star Games coming up, so it just rolls on. As you guys know, in our industry, uh, there's always another game. So I, 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 I was with them. Uh, a bunch of football people the other day. And, uh, and I remember thinking when, when their gig gets done, they look at like months at American football, right. uh, months before they actually get back into it. And our, our, our world just keeps going. I, I, I like it like that, but it is a never-ending eternal type of uh, quest. Yeah. I mean, this summer has proven to be a case where the off season has kind of been busier than the actual season with these tournaments that have piled up on top of tournaments from cancellations last year. I mean, this has been, this has been madness. It's been fun, but yes, it is very much nonstop. And let's start here with the U S and I guess kind of a big picture. We'll start with that from, you know, we've spent the last few weeks watching the men's team at the gold cup. And I don't know if you've seen this. I've been noticing at least a little bit on, on us soccer, Twitter, kind of a push and pull happening with the fan base right now. So I'll ask you the question that we're seeing a lot of is beating a strong Mexico side without many or all of our first choice players, a sign of how strong American soccer is right now. Or do we, do we kind of need to look at this for what it was a single tournament, some so-so performances that happened to end with a narrow upset win, which one do you kind of lean more towards? I, I do lean towards that. We can take a lot out of this summer. Now, doesn't mean if we go and you know what the bed uh, this fall, well, starting this fall with World Cup qualifying, that it's not a problem. And that ultimately is the quest for the U.S. men's national team, regardless of what that 23 players uh, looks like that Greg Berhalter calls. However, uh, you know, I mean, you guys know, look, in, in 2017, uh, it was the lowest point. It was the greatest failure in U.S. soccer history to not qualify for the World Cup from a men's uh, perspective. And yet we find ourselves today, what we're, we're recording this on Thursday, August 5th of 2021. And I can't think of a time when people have been more optimistic. And I do think mm-hmm. that that is, is fair and warranted to have this optimism and to have this belief because you, you look at the amount of players that we have, you look at where the players are playing, the depth of talent, now the competition of talent. These are all good problems for Greg Berhalter and company. And, you know, he's, you know, as, as Tata Martino likes to talk about, these are champagne problems in that he's got to figure out what the best collection of players is, because it's not just the best players, it's the best collection of players. But I think he's, 
I think that data that has been accumulated over this uh, over this summer is going to be crucial and really, really valuable to when he does figure out what's going to happen in qualifying. And yes, qualifying is, is the most important thing. And obviously doing well at the World Cup is how he is going to be judged. But I do think that we can have some things that we can take away from this summer. Alexi, I'm going to ask you to bring down the axe of judgment a little bit early here. Um, <laughs> you were... You did the one thing at a press conference, which was Greg Berhalter's first press conference, that uh, that I love because you wouldn't allow him to talk in generalisms or, or overarching things. You wanted specifics. And you asked him at his very first press conference what the style of play would be. What should we be looking out for? And he said the idea is that we're an attacking-based team that wants to cre- uh, create attack opportunities by disorganizing the opponent. And he said, we want to see the ball circulation, breaking lines, creating goal-scoring opportunities. That should be the DNA of this team. Have we seen that DNA so far, Alexi? No. Um, and, and that's not a that's not necessarily a knock on Greg Berhalter because let's be honest, uh, he has had an experience pretty much unlike any other coach with you know, having to just in normal times, the amount of time that you have with the team is very, very limited. It's one of the challenges that international coaches have. And now we're talking about a pandemic that he's worked through. I, so I do think that I do think he's a true believer. I do think he's a romantic in the way that he envisions this team playing. But I also think that there is some pragmatism and some realism that has crept in, given the circumstances that we are in. I mean, if you watch the game the other day um, in the Gold Cup final against Mexico, I don't think anybody would mistake us for Spain or for Barcelona in our ability to maintain possession. In, a, in an ironic way, though, what, what, what we saw was hearkened back to you know some of the stuff that we've talked about over the years and some of the dna i think that exists in the american program a real for lack of a better word americanness in the way and once again it's like the supreme court obscenity i i I can't really define it but i know it when i see it and so when you saw it i I can't tell you the amount of people that came up to me and and i've talked and i've spoken to since that game that said I, I saw something there that makes me want to believe that that yes. reminded me of the past. And once again, it's not regressive, but it is taking something from the past. Now, I do think that there is a desire to keep the ball, to possess, uh, to possess and a adherence to coming out of the back um, and, and playing out of the back that a lot of teams kind of are, are, are looking as more evolved and progressive. Um, having said that, I think when it gets down and dirty and when we were playing against teams that are better than us, it's just not practical to be able to do that. And I'll be interested to see what that balance is. And I, so I think, look, I think everybody evolves and changes. So I think the way that he has approached what he wanted to do when he first got that job and when we were asking those questions initially and what he feels he can do right now, maybe are very different things. I, I agree with that, Alexi. And I think the, uh, the moment where Legette pressed, uh, was it Salcedo, won the ball back and got it to, to Ariola. I thought, yeah. That, that's both Bearhalter's vision and a little bit of Americana right there. It's a good, that's a good example. That's a good example. Because there would have been a time, and I know even you know, back in, in my generation, we would have said, hey, listen, let's pull back and let's learn. Right. You know, we'll, we'll live to fight another day here and we'll absorb some more pressure. So I think you know, what, that, that balance of at times you know, having a high press, also at times taking some risk in playing out of the back to gain the advantage of breaking a team down and creating some space up there. All of those things can happen. But look, guys, this is... This is ultimately about judging ourselves and competing with teams that are as good and better than us, the elites. Okay, we've 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 been able to be 
to beat lower teams. And we actually have played the underdog role pretty, pretty well, which I think was very comfortable for this team the other day against uh, against Mexico. But ultimately, it's about growing and being able to beat those teams that out out there that are better than us and to kind of translate to that role where we are playing teams and we're not necessarily in that underdog role. And so we have to take the onus on ourselves and attack and do some different things. So then along those lines, you know, like you say, he just won two cup finals in the span of a couple months against Mexico. He's the fastest U.S. manager to 25 wins for whatever that's worth. Uh, and he, he's had, as you know, many detractors. There are people who didn't love the way he was hired. There are people who just didn't think he was the right choice. Um, with what he's done, I'm not saying permanently, but at least where we sit right now, has he done enough to silence his critics? No, he has not done enough to silence uh, the critics. They will always be there regardless of what happens. And to your point, he is, uh, you know, a, a glorified MLS coach. He is too young. He's too inexperienced. Uh, his brother got him the job. Um, he's not Jesse Marsh. He's not Tata Martino. I mean, those those are not going to go away. That's just the reality until uh, until it happens in the world, uh, the World Cup. And, you know, that's OK. I think he understands that he's a big boy. I've talked to him before. He understands. But having said that, I do think that he deserves some credit for the success that he has, because we know when it really comes down to it, winning and losing is a very important component. And I do think that even though he has changed a little bit over the last couple of years, I do think that he has progressed and evolved this team. And if, and if nothing more than just the sheer depth of talent that we have, uh, the ability to uh, recruit, if you will, and, and keep talent uh, and, and say, hey, this is a fun place for you to play. This is a place that if you have other choices you want to play, we're going to talk, to, I'll talk about dual nationals. So, yeah, I think I do think that this summer absolutely is a feather in his cap. But I think he'd be the first person to tell you that, you know, Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? And once those uh, World Cup qualifiers start this this fall, nobody's going to give a crap about what happened in Gold Cup. Alexia, I wanted to ask you as a, a former center half, um, a position that requires a huge amount of trust in the guy behind you. And I'm not, I, I don't think I have a favorite in this, mm-hmm. but, but there are three goalkeepers vying for one starting spot now. And, and I think there's no way you can't include Matt Turner after the tournament he's had. Um, looking at those three as a center back and maybe, maybe just let's not even focus on what Bearholder wants them to do with the ball at their feet. But if, if you were in, in that team, right now who would you like behind you I think it's Matt Turner and this is this is the reason I do think that Zach Steffen um, I, I think that Greg Berhalter will stay with him as the number one for now I do think he has a soft spot in his heart but I also think that there is a uh, you know a part of that is is the reality that with his feet which is something that Greg Berhalter still wants to do he is very very good and he's very confident um, and courageous if you will with his feet and I think that that's something that will differentiate him from the other ones Having said that, I, I mean, I might be crazy, but I want a goalkeeper that's going to save the ball. Ultimately, that is ultimately your job. And I know that that job description has changed and evolved over time. And especially now where so many teams look to play out of the back, you have to be able to hit, especially those cross field balls, the outside backs. We all know uh, about that and kind of start what's what's going on um, when when Matt Turner does something like this, uh, that that instills me with confidence, because let's let's be honest once again. We are going to face teams ultimately that are better than us. And that's where the judgment is going to come. And we might not have the ball. We might not be either. We might choose not to possess it, or we might just not be able to do the things that we want to do, which means at times we are going to be under pressure. And look, 
uh, you know, I had wonderful goalkeepers like Tony Miola and Casey Keller and Brad Friedel. They saved my ass because we are going to make mistakes ultimately. And to have that confidence and that faith in the person behind you that if and when, not if, you, when you make a mistake, because it's always going to happen at some point, you have somebody that is going to come up big. That is incredibly valuable. And once again, I'm not saying that, that Zach Steffen can't do that same thing, but, you know, we look at Zach Steffen, right? He's not a full-time starter right now, although he's playing at one of the great clubs in the world, and there is a value to that. He has been injured over the last couple of years. We've seen hamstring injuries, and even in the Nations League where he went out injured. So things can happen. And by the way, this, this World Cup qualifying process, even when it comes to goalkeepers, there might be some rotation uh, going on. But Matt Turner, I think far and away um, after this summer, has fundamentally changed, I think, the way that we think about him and the way that we think about the goalkeeping position going forward for the U.S. national. You know, that was one of the interesting things about this Gold Cup for the U.S. Obviously, the point was to win it. I mean, that it's a tournament. You want to win it. But a huge part of this also with the team that they put out there was to evaluate players moving forward that could be useful for World Cup qualifying and potentially beyond. Obviously, like you said, Matt Turner established himself at the end of the summer as one of those guys. Who else were you looking at coming out of this thinking, okay, I can now trust that guy should this guy get injured moving forward? Sure. I mean, so obviously Kellen Acosta was a, was a monster, uh, especially in that, in that final game. So, but, but we knew who Kellen Acosta was. We didn't necessarily know whether he was going to um, kind of state his case and kind of reemerge as, Hey, listen, if, if World Cup qualifying started tomorrow and we had our, we had our 11 and everybody was healthy, you know, maybe you're looking at Kellen Acosta, Tyler Adams and, uh, and Weston McKinney uh, as that three in there. So I think definitely him, but we, we've seen him as we have seen Jassy Zardes. We'll get to the, the number nine position here in a second, but we know who Jassy Zardes is and we know what, what he is and what he isn't. But I think, you know, when you look at Miles Robinson, because there is a position next to Brooks, I think that is open in that center back position. I still think that Zimmerman, uh, if he's healthy is the one that's going to take it. But I mean, Robinson's stock rose immensely his one-on-one ability um, and the emergency type of defending at times that he had that you just can't teach uh, and his ability and, and, you know, obviously set pieces and all that kind of stuff, I think was really good. And then there's some w- interesting, weird pieces like, like for example, um, rolled on. Okay. Christian rolled on. He, he comes on the field and he fundamentally changes it. And I, I've watched this player and I'll be the first one to put up my hand and say, I didn't, think that he was going to evolve and grow as much as he has hmm. and credit to him for, for everything that he's done with Seattle and now with the, uh, the national team. He's an interesting and, and kind of a weird little piece that I do think Greg Berhalter will value, not as a starter, but as coming off the bench and kind of doing some different things. I mean, we saw him come in and it fundamentally changed the look and the complexion of the game. And there was service out wide. And it, and it was just really interesting to see someone like him. Obviously we were all kind of introduced to Hoppy and what he is. I'm not as, as bullish about him, um, but he does do some stuff and some interesting stuff. I think he'll be around. I think the big disappointment was Daryl DK up top. Um, he did not have a good tournament and kind of didn't fulfill this promise as the chosen one. I'm still not ready to give up on him, but uh, you know, that number nine position I think is still just wide open right now where you have Zardes, DK, um, obviously uh, Josh Sargent, uh, then you have PFOC and, um, you know, others out there, Weyas and, and, and that type of stuff going on. Um, let me think of uh, anybody else out there that really uh, kind of stood out. You know, I think Reggie Cannon kind of showed that, that he still is that right back position, but 
Shaq Moore playing really, really well out there. We've got a lot of right backs, by the way. But <laughs> it, it, it depends on what Serginho Dest is going to do and where he's going to play. If he's on the left-hand side, then Reggie Cannon. So a lot, of, a lot of good stuff. And these are good problems, like I said, for Greg Berhalter to have. Alexi, I just saw a tweet there that uh, Sam Vines is on his way to uh, Antwerp. Yep. To Royal Antwerp in Belgium. And another uh, MLS player on his way to Europe. Um, this is a good thing, right? Um, because they're going to be playing at a, a higher level, we presume. I don't watch that much of the Juniper League, so I'm, I'm not going to say that I, I definitely know it's a much higher level than MLS. Um, but we're seeing this happen a lot now. Uh, what are MLS academies doing that they maybe didn't do in the past? Well, there are more academies for a start, but um, this seems like to it seems like a really amazing moment for for these players. It is. And, and there, you know, there's a business aspect to it that is incredibly mm. successful right now with obviously selling players and and creating that pipeline. But I think more importantly, it's the it's the creation of um, a credibility. And, and a respect level of these players. And look, some of it, once again, is relative to business. You can get them for cheaper. Um, they are not going to cause problems. I think a lot of times with the relationships that are established, either for the individual teams, you look at something like Dallas, or in general, when it comes to Major League Soccer, <clears throat> there's, you know, there's, there's a recognition that you are getting a good quality product and that you are spending your money wisely when you spend it there, as opposed to maybe some other wild west type of uh spendings uh in other leagues and other countries and cultures uh, out there so i think that it's appealing to the 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 world and the global marketplace out there uh and not just american players but mls players in particular and they could be american players they could be foreign players um and, you know but and I, I would caution us and i always have that this is a good thing um in terms of you know, the, the way it looks. Yes. It doesn't necessarily, to your point, mean that the player should be starting. Uh, there's, you don't magically become a better player simply by setting foot on the tarmac at, at Heathrow or, or, or any place no. else in Europe. So, and playing in Europe for players, I know it's the be all and end all for a lot of players. I get it. There's a dream. I, you know, I, I totally get it. I understand that. But it, that's the easy part, actually, is going over there. Okay. Finding a place where, number one, you're getting paid. Number two, you are playing. Number three, you are comfortable. And not just in the 90 minutes that you're on the field, but the other 22 and a half hours that sometimes we, we don't talk about. All of those different things are important. And the level, to your point, actually, to where you're playing. It, you know, some of, these, some of these moves that we look at aren't necessarily upward moves or even necessarily sideways moves. And sometimes they're a step back to go two steps forward. So we really have to. We have to be careful in how we value and look at these at, at these players. And it doesn't I, I get it. You know, I mean, the European cachet is yeah. always going to heighten the way we which in which we see and value a player. But, you know, ultimately for Greg Berhalter, and I think he I think one thing that he's made very, very clear is that, yes, there are kind of A and B teams that we saw this summer, but I think he just looks at it as I'm going to get the best damn 11 players that function the best on the field, regardless of their resume, regardless of how much money they're making, the fame, who they're dating, whatever it ends up being, I'm going to put that best 11 on the field. And I think that's the way to go because it's, it's, it, it, it would, you would be excused and it is kind of uh, predictable that, you would be fascinated and romanced by somebody's CV and you've got to really guard guard against that. I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, Sergio Des playing at Barcelona isn't great and that he should 
if if uh, if the if the formula works, be a good player for the team. But it doesn't always work that or work that way when that whistle blows, especially in Concacaf. Talking to Alexi Lalas here on Caught Offside, uh, so Alexi. I wanted to ever since watching the the Gold Cup final Sunday night, I've wanted to ask you about this. Your emotion following the game. You you are an emotional analyst. We've seen that before. I think it's something that fans love about you. I think a lot of fans see themselves in you in those moments, which is cool. With regards to this, were you surprised that this win hit you the way that it did? What made this particularly special to you? Yeah, um, <laughs> got away from me there a little bit. I, and I and I thought it was great. Uh, yeah, but it, it yeah. Anyway, uh, it. I think what happened was it was a culmination of a lot of things. I, I, it, uh, to your point, yeah, it it caught me completely off guard. That was not something that I thought I was going to feel in that moment. And I think I'll be honest with you. I think it has much more to do with the last couple of years than it does soccer or the U.S. team. Um, and, and when I say that, it's, you know, I hadn't been in a stadium in that capacity in a long time. You know, most of our pandemic existence has been from the studio. Right. And it's a very kind of sterile environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to be there with 60,000 people, and, and by the way, you know, most of them cheering against your team, but, but just to see the whole pageantry that I had missed so much, that, that moved me. And then all of the craziness that's gone on in our world and the, the U.S., and I, am, you know, I wear it on my sleeve. I'm unabashedly um, proud of uh, this country with all of its flaws and, and everything mm. uh, that we do. Not everything we do, but a lot of things uh, that we do. And to see it kind of... Um, manifest in this moment of Americanness, where this underdog team did something that people didn't believe that they could do. Yeah, it's you know you can't control it. Just it just it just hits you. And um, and like I said, it probably had much more to do with with other things than it did about did about soccer. Having said that, you know this this team and this you know this and Greg Berhalter, what we had asked of them actually from the beginning of the summer, not just the Gold Cup, but from the beginning of the summer and quite honest over the last couple of years is to make us believe again and that belief was certainly there when that final whistle blew that all the things that we're talking about are there this is a time to be incredibly excited and optimistic um, in what is going on with soccer not, not even just men's soccer what is going on with soccer in the united states and so it was a lot of different things that came that came about i i, I certainly don't don't want to make a habit of it but i i you know i love this i love this team uh, I love this country. Doesn't mean I'm not critical of both things, by the way, mm. at, at different times. But in that moment, I think it just it all kind of bubbled to the surface. And uh, you got to see a 51 year old, you know, cry on, <laughs> on television. You, you are is, right. Like I though, said, not something that I want to make a habit. of. Doing. You are right, though, in that over, I mean, 18 months, we have not been as a people. We have not been exposed to many moments of joy. Right. And that was like joy on steroids. Like you said, you're in a, a huge building. These guys on the field that you presumably know a bunch of them. And, you know, I, I'm it's easy for me to see how how that could happen. I guess is, is what I'm saying that, that, that anybody could get caught up in the emotion of that moment. I thought it was cool. I'll, yeah. I'm good. Totally I, honest. I, I appreciate it. Like I said, you have to, um, I, 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 I'm there to document what's, what's going on, but I am, and I will, uh, um, for the people that maybe don't believe it, I am a human being. <laughs> I do have emotions. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes they, they get the better of me and, and, and different things. Sometimes, it, you know, it's the opposite way of me screaming and yelling, getting very angry and irritated. Um, 
and, and showing my consternation and stuff like that. So I, I try to, to balance it and, and understand, uh, you know, how to tamp it down, tamp it down when, uh, when need be. But, you know, this is, this is also, you know, I think I said it on there. This is, I, I recognize it's just sports, but yeah, there's, there's other parts of sports and there's reasons why we love and watch sports that have nothing to do even necessarily with, with kicking the ball that can sometimes creep in in mysterious ways. That's one of the things that I know you guys and, and we all love about the game. I, I can't let you off this yet, Alexi. I'm going to ask you a little bit more. You sure. tweeted a picture of yourself and the former manager, Boro Miljatinovic, before the game. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if the whole moment, the win, the way in which America played, and you were kind of transported back to, to that feeling you had when you played for your country and you were thinking of Bora and those times. Was there something of a nostalgia in it? Maybe, maybe all these things were linking together in your mind. You know, there is, uh, you know, I, 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 I mean, he's a, he, it's not often that you can, you know, still see uh, somebody that changed your life. And right. this man changed my life in the opportunity that he gave me. And look, the reason why I'm talking to you here today is in almost entirely because of the summer of 1994 in the world cup, which is why I'm so excited about 2026, where we're going to host it again. It's going to be, it's going to be great. Um, but it, it changed my life. And this is the man that taught me so much. And in doing so, I think, along with a lot of other people on and off the field, we helped to move the game forward. And, you know, I, you know, I can scream and yell about different things, and, and I certainly will. And, you know, I'll, I'll go on television and I'll perform everything. But ultimately, I, I want this game to succeed. And I believe that this game can succeed and be massive here in the United States. It's going to be different. It's going to be unique. And we shouldn't apologize uh, for that. But when we have these moments and when I see people that, that, that have worked hard over the years and that have contributed it, to, to it in, in, in different ways. And, and look, that applies to you guys. It applies to everybody that's working each and every day. And it's a grind. You guys know it's, it's, it's not easy. And we have all the competition of the other leagues and the other sports and we're battling history or lack of history, all of that kind of stuff. You know, when you have these moments, I think it's I think it's right to celebrate and to see, you know, someone like him who played such a huge part in my life. Yeah, I think it all kind of like I said, it all just bubbled together, marinated and, um, you know, and then that team did something that was not expected, that was uh, incredibly um, interesting and remarkable in the way that it happened. And I think it just hit it hit a lot of people. I think to your point, you're absolutely right in a time and an era where it's, it's not that we, that we don't want to celebrate. It's just, we haven't had a lot of things to celebrate. Okay. Sure, yeah. I mean, this is not going to many, many millenniums from now, when we look back, it's not going to be a time where everybody's going to say, Oh, that was great. Uh, no, there's wonderful things that have happened, but let's be honest. Uh, we've, we've lived through some, some, some dark times and we continue to be. Um, and so to have, you know, a moment, I think that that's, that's good. And I, I'm glad that you guys, I'm glad that other people out there celebrated it and saw it for what it's worth. Now, we don't rest on our laurels and we got, like I said, lots of work to do. And there's, believe me, there are some games coming against Mexico that are going to be epic and they're going to, they are more than anything now are going to want revenge. But, you know, at least in that moment and that, uh, that day and certainly that night later on in Vegas, we had a good time and we <laughs> celebrated a good thing that had happened, not just in our sport, but uh, I like to think uh, in our country. Yeah, just a couple more here. You've been so generous with your time. And, and you mentioned, Alexi, USA and Mexico 
this rivalry once again feels like we are hitting like a sustained peak. These teams again feel even. These games have been epic. This summer along two finals, dramatic games, physical almost to a fault. I mean, Eric Williamson is going to have stories for the rest of his life about getting karate <laughs> kicked from Hector Herrera over the years. The Anyewu stare. Do you have a favorite USA Mexico story from your time, either as a player or even after? Uh, so the first time that I ever played in Azteca, we got our ass handed to like four nothing. They kicked the. It was actually in a Gold Cup final. We played the entire Gold Cup in the U.S. and then for the final, for some reason, we went down to Mexico City <laughs> and they hammered us. So that was the first time actually being in that that awe of what Mexico City and uh, the Azteca is. So that was in, that was certainly is a is a memory. And then a few years later, we actually beat Mexico in much more of a neutral type of setting, like in 2002 in the World Cup down in Copa America. And that was huge because, you know, to your point, the pendulum swings back and forth. And there was a time, you know, back in the 80s where it wasn't even a pendulum. It was just pegged to one side when it came to Mexico. And, you know, my, my generation, we started to work on it and, and we're, okay and we would get some wins here and and uh, have some successes here or there and then that next generation really kind of took it to another level and we you know we saw that pendulum swing back and forth uh there were times we would call it the gap the gap is widening the gap is you know narrowing and, and all that and so now you're absolutely right that I mean, it's it's hard to predict these types of games. And for the two superpowers, if you will, in CONCACAF, that's a good thing. Uh, and so where that pendulum is right now, I, you know, I don't know. Somebody asked me the other day about the Mexican Federation and how they may be thinking about this generation and the quality relative to, you know, the Christian politics and, and uh, Weston McKenney's and stuff like that. I don't think they're shaking in their shoes, but I think they are well aware that if they're not careful, it's not about a pendulum anymore. It's about a train leaving the station that they're not going to be able to get back. Alexi, um, final one from me. We are about to embark, or in a couple of months, we're going to embark on a very, very tight World Cup qualifying schedule. I think there's only one window in which the US will play two games. These are going to be compacted together due to the pandemic and time restrictions. And uh, if you had one piece of advice, because there will be some players who will be experiencing the white heat of away games um, from, from your World Cup experiences, World Cup qualifying, going to places like San Pedro Sula, <laughs> mm. what, would you, what would you say? What's the one bit of advice you give uh, to these players as they embark upon this odyssey? I mean, you know, the easy answer is you don't know it until you, until you see it and then it's too late, right? So <laughs> for a lot of these players that are wonderful and once again your your resume all that is thrown out the window okay you you got to use what you got but you are going to experience fields you are going to experience off-field situations you are going to experience refereeing you are going to experience crowds that are very very different and um you're going to have to bring to bear every bit of knowledge that you have and you're gonna have to learn on the fly and i think that's really where the best players are that whistle blows. They start, they understand what the environment is about and your ability to adjust and be flexible, I think is crucial individually and collectively uh, as a team. And I, and I do think what'll be interesting. And I don't know if you guys you know, have, have thoughts on this, but you know, we saw a heavy rotation through these tournaments with, with different players. And with these three games, conventional wisdom would say, well, there's going to be heavy rotation through these. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we were just looking at, you know, for example, the women's national team here uh, that just bombed out 
for them, it's bombing out winning a, a bronze. But I, I was listening to some of the comments from them where they said, you know, we rotated a lot of times and we didn't get a, a rhythm and a flow. And so I, I try I try to th- put myself in a position of playing those three games in 10 days or whatever that window is going to be. And I think it's going to, I think it's up to Greg Berhold. This is where he's really going to earn his money, where he has to decide either collectively from what teams he's putting on or the individual, how many of the players are going to benefit from a rhythm and a flow of playing each game and how many are going to, how many is it going to be detrimental? And therefore you do have to uh, have to rotate. And I, and I don't know what he's going to come, come down on when it comes, uh, when it comes to something like that, but and I can't, I can't tell you, you know, you, know, you, you have no idea until you actually, actually experienced. I mean, this team is going to be better as a team and individually after this world cup qualifying process. And you just hope that whatever mistakes, and there will be mistakes, whatever mistakes, they're not massive mistakes that are the difference between going uh, or not. So as, as you're learning on the fly, just make sure you're getting those points, especially at home and then finding ways to find, you know, uh, a point here or there uh, on the road. So we get to be one of those top three. Uh, before we let you go, Alexi, you, we have to mention this, of course, you just mentioned it there. The U S women uh, picked up the bronze medal today. Like you said, for some countries, that's a dream come true. This is not one of those countries, any tournament they are in, they expect to win. I had said coming into this tournament, we, when we did our preview for it, that fans needed to appreciate this Olympic run because this might be last call for this group. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, I can't help but wonder, did last call already happen back in France in 2019, but because the U.S. won, it kind of papered over cracks? Yeah, I mean, we all know that the international game, for the most part, is a young man or woman's game, okay? Um, And you can get, you, you can stay too long at the party. And it's up to a coach to make sure that they they figure that out. You know, keep in mind that the U.S. have had success and have won World Cups with some very old teams, quote unquote, old teams. Mm-hmm. But the something was off. And so this is up to Vlakonovsky to figure out what it was that was off, why he wasn't able to predict it, or did he predict it and just not doing anything about it from a federation perspective and Kate Margrath and and uh, Ernie Stewart, they have to come you know together and say, is this the man that we feel is qualified to lead us to 2023, which is the World Cup? I think that this is absolutely a time for change and turnover. And there are plenty of you know, good young players uh, out there. I mean, look, I don't I don't. Carly Lloyd probably could play till she's 50 years old if she uh, if she wanted to. And she could be she could be useful. Doesn't necessarily mean that you should have her in the national team. A national team is not promised to anyone. And you move on very, very quickly. And we will thank everyone for their service and, and all that. But this is a national team that has built their brand on being the best in the world, both as a team and having some of the great players in the world. Okay. And not being third in the world when it comes to bronze. So congratulations, you won a medal, but that's not what this team is all about. And they have very, very high expectations, as we do. And their standards are very, very high. And we hold them uh, to a high standard because of what they've done. So if you're going to change, change now and get ready for 2023. Because if, if they were to come back in 2023 and win, that would be three World Cups in a row. And that would be an incredible feat. But if there are changes to be made, this is actually the perfect time uh, for them to change. Yep. Good stuff, man. Before we let you go, any music 
coming down. Yeah, I'm actually sitting. In, I'm sitting in front of a Pro Tools uh, session here right now. I mean, look, anybody and everybody that does music probably has an album or multiple albums uh, over the last couple of years. We spend so much time. I mean, a lot of it's crap, including mine, definitely. So there's going to be this glut of stuff that is released and everybody after being pent up for so long. And I, I too, will release uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of crap out there for the three people that listen to it, including my mom. Well, sometimes my mom. So <laughs> nice. Well, seeing you there, people can't see what we can see. you got guitars in the background. I mean, clearly in like a studio there. I'm so curious if you had to remove one from your life, music or sports, which would it be? Sports. Wow. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, they, they, you know, I stopped kicking a ball a long time ago. I'm still incredibly lucky to have it in my life. And I love, I love what I do, but I do know that, that music has something, you know, it was there before soccer. It's here after soccer. It nurtures me in a way that nothing else that I have found in my life does, except for, you know, family and love or, <laughs> or romance, I guess, if you will. Um, and I recognize that I'm not, as good uh, of a human being without having it in my life. Now, look, I probably wouldn't be as good without having, you know, sports and soccer in my life. But if I had to choose, I mean, I hate when people give you these, these questions and nobody actually chooses. So I'm giving it to you. This is it. All right. If I have to pick, I'm picking music. Good stuff, dude. We love catching up with you. This was a great talk about everything that's gone on and what's to come for the state of us soccer. Alexi Lawless. You can see him of course on Fox. Thanks so much, man. All the best. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job too, and I appreciate. It. I really meant, you know, what I said that there, are, you know, there's a lot of people out there, and and everybody's kind of working each and every day for soccer and and what we're doing, and uh, you know, big and small, um, uh, you know, platforms and voices and all that kind of stuff. But this is all a labor of love, and I appreciate that uh, you guys are part of the family, and uh, we're all working towards something, and hopefully that'll manifest in not just the things that happen on the field, but the things that happen in our culture relative to the game. Appreciate that, Lexi. That's very kind of you. Take care, man. Awesome. Awesome. Love talking with him. Great conversation. Uh, I I didn't read it back to him because I don't think it's fair. Something you say in a broadcast in a minute of emotion uh, shouldn't be read back to, but I, I kind of liked it. It was, it's just a game. There will be other games against Mexico. I don't know. It's everything. It's the way we played. It's America. Love it. I loved, I I actually, well, you lied. What do you mean? You said on, on the last podcast, Alexi was so emotional and, you thought that Mo, uh, Mo Adu should have stepped in. Yeah, I still think that. Oh, no. I don't I have a problem it. with Alexi showing emotion. I just All said right. Mo Adu was sitting there watching <laughs> this and he should have tried to, like, his friend sitting next to him couldn't speak. He should have yeah. bailed him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought, it, I, I love that he shows emotion. It's what we love about him. That was great. Fascinating yeah. stuff. The, the only, the one thing I wanted to comment on, there's a lot to comment on from what he said, but the one thing, because I know t- we're up against it time wise, but, um, it's interesting what he talks about with, when you ask him about the movement of, of players to Europe, this kind of, you know, much more like it used to be like a dirt road for Americans to get from America to Europe. And now it is a super highway. I mean, right. you can see that like guys are just streaming out of the U.S. into Europe. And I think most American soccer fans, every time they see this, the Sam Vines news that you just mentioned, you know, we're, we're hearing about Gianluca Buzio uh, and Venezia and, and like American soccer fans are high fiving each other with each one of these. and. Alexi kind of like tempers that enthusiasm just a little bit, which I find interesting. I, I, I wanted to ask him, but I got distracted. But I was going to say, you know, what does it mean for the league to have all your all your best players, all your stars now? Like if Miles Robinson were to leave Atlanta tomorrow, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. these are Americans who are star players at their clubs. 
in America. Like, what does the league become then? It's just like a really short halfway home. Uh, yes. Um, however, it has also become a place for prominent South American players to come. That's true. And as these American academies are developing uh, and maturing, I think you're just seeing a, a greater amount of quality talent coming through. So, like, yeah, you're right. Star players are going to leave, but it seems like the overall quality of player in this league is rising. Uh, so I'm I'm generally good with this model right now. Plus, if MLS becomes, like you said, a halfway house, that's not always a bad thing. Like players, other good players from, like I said, South America, you know, will want to come here to be seen. So I'm okay if that is the model, at least for now. Uh, let's see, we've got a mailbag coming up in a moment. But first, uh, one quick thing on uh, MLS All-Star Game, JJ. I know that you, you come from a, a continent where All-Star Games are are scoffed at their silliness. Why are we stopping the season for this tomfoolery? Um, I don't have time for this. No, we just never think about them because they aren't a thing. Um, I mean, this year's might be kind of, I do. I will say this about the MLS all-star game. I bring this up because the team was announced for MLS, but um, I do, I do like what they're doing this year. The moving away from let's bring Fulham over here and play a game against MLS. All Like, I don't know something about that. Just, I didn't really enjoy that quite as much, uh, but I do like what they're doing this year. They're, they're just lean. Everyone is leaning into this developing uh, Liga MX MLS rivalry to kind of like be a, like a sidecar to the U S men and uh, Mexican national team rivalry. And so I do kind of like an MLS all-star Liga MX all-star idea. So I think that could be fun. Um, a couple quick observations on the, the selections. I don't have a ton here, just a few guys I wanted to shout out in particular. Cade Cowell, 17 years of age, making the all-star team. Pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, by the way, cool. speak, speaking of them, um, Jeremy Abobasi getting traded from Portland to San Jose. Wow. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming, but no. uh, pretty interesting. Very interesting move, that. Yeah. Uh, that was not on anybody's radar. Or maybe it was. Well, it wasn't on ours. No. Um, also, another shout out to Chicharito. I know a lot of people were down on him, obviously, and justifiably so after a horrible first season where he was kind of in some in some circles being written off as a bust. Um, but his redemption season continues 10 goals in 10 games. Um, so props to him on, you know, we all said like I had said last season didn't feel like a fair season to judge him off of. Um and sure enough, I think that's bearing itself out. He's been excellent so far this year and a deserving all-star. So credit to him. And one other one, JJ, we haven't had a chance to talk about this guy because of everything going on internationally, but um, Ricardo Pepe, 18 years old, um, another star coming through that FC Dallas system. And he is an all-star now, eight goals in 10 starts, actually the highest scoring American player in MLS, which I thought was like, I almost had to go back and look and, and see if that was actually true, but I'm going to just take fcdallas.com at their word. Um, ah, but JJ, uh, I say the highest scoring American player in MLS. That's a tricky one as we've got another one of these USA Mexico battles on our hands. Oh boy. Dual na a dual national. That's right. Uh, he spoke to fcdallas.com about his dual national status just the other day. Uh, he said, I feel like both the U S and Mexico have great programs. This can go either way, but I feel like the decision has yet to be made. Whenever that time comes, I feel like that decision will be made. Right now, I'm just really focused on FC Dallas and giving my all for the team. If I'm doing it at club level, then the time will come for me internationally. 
So yet another one to keep an eye on. And uh, this guy, the things that we're starting to see from him at 18, just had a hat trick two weeks ago, I think it was. Um, he could be another special talent, and this could be uh, this could be another war between these two countries to get his signature. So yeah, for sure, you've got a nice spread of talent there. Pepe, you got Tejan Buchanan as well, and in the defense, you've got James Sands, who is, uh, from what I can see, New York City's only uh, member of the All Star squad. I'm sure NYCFC fans will have something to say about that. But um, yeah, should be interesting. Yep. Uh, so there you go. So all right, mailbag. Let's do it. Let's do the mail busy. Caught offside pod at gmail.com at CO Soccer Pod and caught offside ESPN for your Twitter and Instagrams. Here is a Twitter, a tweet. Michael. Uh, Michael wants to know how long until the Roma Mourinho experiment self destructs? <laughs> Does he last a year? That is such a great question. Um, I've been reading a lot about how Mourinho is still revered in Italy. Yep. And the negativity of his last two jobs in England hasn't percolated into the, into the Italian fan base. Like Roma fans are pumped for him. Right. Um, James Horncastle spoke about how he's still the last manager of an Italian club to lift the European Cup. And that's like set in the Italian mindset, even though it was a decade ago with uh, Inter. Um, so it's very interesting to see how long that goodwill will last. What I'm doing is I'm wondering who is the first player he falls out with. So straight, I was on um, Roma's Twitter yesterday, and uh, <laughs> uh, Zaniola, the uh, the young the young player who had the ACL last season and who's who's pretty well liked, um, he had an ACL tear uh, last year, so he was out for all of last year. He's only 22, and he's returning as a striker. And I just looked at him and I thought, yeah, this could be the guy. This could be the guy that Mourinho uh, not picks on, but he could be his Luke Shaw. Um, so I might I might put a few bob on the first Mourinho fallout will be uh, Zaniolo. Well, uh, sadly, I mean, the the candidate for that would have been Mkhitaryan. Right. But Mourinho spoke. He's obviously been asked about that. Um, and he said that they've spoken and they've smoothed things over. Mm. Uh, the past is the past. So we'll see. Um I mean, that to me was one of Mourinho's biggest failures was I, I really that like when I look back on transfers that I thought were going to be big for a club, that is one of my all time got it wrongs. I thought Mkhitaryan was going to be a star uh, at United. Oh, I thought, really I thought Shinji happen. Kagawa was too, you know, and it didn't work out. Yeah, but you um, are right, though, in terms of the question about when this all self-destructs, I really do think that um, the way he's viewed in Italy plays a role here. Like he is not the, the toxicity at Tottenham started before they had even kicked the ball. Yeah. So the fact that like you can remove all of that, I read that James Horncastle article at the athletic. It was interesting. He said the, the echo of those achievements referring to what Mourinho did at Inter has resonated loudly enough that while some of the criticism he's received in England and Spain has gotten through Italy has been hard of hearing. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's but it will blow up. There's no question. Uh, Alex Cortez would love to hear your thoughts on this money in football story. A private equity firm taking it, holding a stake and therefore vested financial in interest in La Liga. This is very Javier Tebais and will eventually, inevitably rather, lead to a serious conflict of interest. Okay, Alex, that's Alex's thoughts on that. So um, Spain's uh, La Liga has agreed a $2.7 billion deal with CVC that could see private equity involved in the running of a large European football league for the first time, reports The Guardian. La Liga, which manages the top two divisions of Spanish football, said on Wednesday it will create a new business that will take control of most of its activities in which CVC Capital Partners will own a 10% stake. 
The deal will value La Liga at 24.3 billion, it said. Clubs will receive about 90% of the funds from CVC's investment, including money for women's football. Um, CVC already has an extensive interest in sport, including a deal that it reached in March to invest £365 million sterling in rugby's annual Six Nations tournament between the top European nations. It has also been involved in volleyball, tennis, MotoGP and Formula One. I am not sure what I think of this yet. I'm pretty sure I know. Um, private equity firms just give me a chill. Uh, private equity firms in football is concerning. Um, now, I found a tweet that, <laughs> that kind of sums, sums it up perfectly. Uh, football Isla Leche, uh, who covers Spanish football, tweeted this. I can't decide whether this deal is a cleverly sourced and well-timed injection of crucial capital for La Liga or a bit like when Artie Bucco borrowed 50000 from Tony Soprano. Yeah, I don't know what the end game is here for CVC capital interest, but... I am already skeptical and I, I think I need even more time to think about this and to, to hear people in uh, finance and in money explain to me what that could potentially mean for football. Uh, but I do feel a bit like it could be letting, letting them in the door of football and um, short-term gain for a long-term loss overall. Uh, Josh Ray is talking about the U.S. women's national team. He tweeted us to say, I think the U.S. women's national team lost to Canada was just an end of a tournament, of a tough tournament for our ladies. They are a dominant side that we're used to seeing blast teams out of the water. But in the Olympics, they're seeing the best nations in the world. They're a cohesive group that had a tough run. Um, so we should say that they won the bronze this morning. They did win the bronze this morning in epic fashion, a 4-3 uh, game against uh, Australia. That included the goal of the tournament. Uh, for Megan Rapino. Incredible. What a, what a and, superb and she, volley. And she did it back in the 2000. Oh, I wasn't even talking about the volley. She had, oh, right, I love the volley. She had two goals, but no. And when, you get, when you do an Olympico, in the Olympics, no less, uh, ah. it was beautiful. It was just awesome. That is, ah. that is a great goal. It's funny. Goals from corner kicks have never done much for me. What? No, oh, I think I, uh, I think they're awesome, especially one see, like that. It was no deflection. It was just like it was in. perfect. It was yeah. just perfect. I saw Steve Staunton do one for Ireland against Northern Ireland. It was definitely wind assisted. And, it, it, you know, the whip he got on the ball was very, very cool. But yeah, I don't know. I, I really liked her volley goal into the roof of the net a deflection off an Australian player. And she just swivels and smashes it home. Yeah. And um, also Carly Lloyd, we should say two goals, uh, two from Rapino, two from Lloyd. Uh, Carly Lloyd becomes the U.S. women's all-time leading scorer in the Olympics. So congratulations to her as well. Uh, um, yeah, I, I have a couple thoughts off of this tweet from Josh. Uh, for one, I, don't, I actually take a little bit of exception with, and I know maybe you and I are to blame for this because we kind of give off this feeling too, but he said they're a dominant side that we're used to seeing blast teams out of the water. That's true. Sort of. I mean, think like... In the last World Cup, there were close calls. Remember, like we, there were games where we we talked all the time about Jill Ellis. Like, is she doing enough to get the most out of this team? Because so, a lot of those games were closer than whatever we thought they should have been. Um, you know, previous to that, what was the World Cup? I mean, you had the yeah, World yeah, Cup yeah. two World Cups ago, of uh, you know, like Wambach needing the 121st minute header to keep them alive against Brazil, and um, you know, so like this team hasn't. They don't smash everyone. I, the world, we've always said in women's soccer, the world has caught up in, in many respects, but the U.S. has done a good job of, of staying ahead of the pack. Um, 
they, yeah. they, they largely smash everyone. They largely smash everyone, Andrew. And, and, and the reason that there was dismay about the, the last World Cup, even though they won it, not dismay, disappointment from a lot of fans is because they felt as if they should have been let off the leash more due to their talent. Uh, but they still won it at a canter. Uh, all right, maybe. I don't know. And then, so- and then all the tournaments, the She Believes Cups. I mean, the only team that has ever in the last, well, not ever, but in the last 50 games, what's the only, what's the only team that's really had their number in that, those competitions? That's been Sweden. Um, no, look, they're, they're great. Like, they, like we said before this tournament started, they, whatever tournament they're in, we expect them to win. Um, the one thing, the other thing that Josh says here that is interesting to me is the suggestion that maybe this was just the end of a tough tournament. Um, like, yeah, I, I would not use this as a way of saying that the American reign over women's soccer is finished uh, even just because they lost this. I, I mm. do. I do contend that like, it's not always going to be easy for them. Um, but yeah, they they'll continue to be great. Here are the players under the age of 30 that were on this team. Crystal Dunn, Tierna Davidson, Abby Dahlkamper, Emily Sonnet, Sam Mewis, Julie Ertz, Lindsay Horan, Rose Lavelle, Katerina Macario, and Lynn Williams. I mean, there are superstars in there that are relatively young that you will see for at least one more World Cup and probably another Olympics. So, yeah, they'll continue to be great, but there's also a group of players that it's going to be difficult to see how the ends of their careers are handled. Like we always, we've always said that one of the hardest things in sports for a manager in any sport to have to deal with is the end of a legend's career. Cause in the mind of a legend, they're still a legend, yeah. but you know, but a manager has more to consider like the future of that team and whether or not that player is still up to the standards that maybe they think they are in their head. So uh, yeah, this Vladko Andonovsky is going to have some really difficult decisions to make moving forward about some of these players, you know, Alex Morgan, for example, did not feature in the, uh, in the bronze medal match. Um, you know, so like this is it's transition time. Like this is now after an Olympics that ends with a bronze medal, like they didn't have to face some of these decisions after the world cup because they won it. So I think in the minds of some people, there might've been a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. But even though a bronze medal is not, you know, for a lot of countries, it's something that they dream of, but that's not, that's not the case for the U S women. It is not, they do not, they do not come here dreaming of a bronze medal. So now that they're coming out of here, finishing third, uh, yeah, I think now it, it might be wake up call time for, uh, for the manager and for us soccer on how they want to move forward. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting watching this transition. Cause these are, these are star players that we're talking about that their roles are going to change. There is a warning with the next, uh, tweet. Uh, and the warning is just that this guy doesn't like Lukaku and doesn't rate him. Not that he doesn't like him. He just doesn't rate him. Okay. Uh, Jay Lavin too. How is Lukaku's price? $110 million plus. Well, I mean, it's basically because he's had two excellent seasons in Serie A where he scored over 20 goals and has been one of the most productive strikers in Europe. It's as simple as that. Now, should, should Chelsea be paying $110 million? Well, it's whatever they, they view him to be worth, whatever they can afford to pay. Inter are in some financial distress still, uh, despite the bailout, they still have to balance the books and getting them, getting the best possible price for Lukaku would certainly help that. So that's, yeah. that's why he's ranked at over hundred million. One, um, one quick thing, one quick thing, by the way, I forgot Alex Morgan did come on in the 81st minute. I forgot that she did play, but still only nine minutes for her at the end of the game. Um, with regards to this one on Lukaku, I mean, 
if Kane is valued somewhere between, say, like one fifth between one thirty and one sixty, then is one hundred and ten for Lukaku ridiculous? No, no, and, and also it's about. So. Also, it's about you're dealing with in the case of Kane, Manchester City, probably, and in the case of Lukaku, Chelsea. So. It, you absolutely have to dance with these teams and get as much as you possibly can from them because you know they can afford it. And this is money that's badly needed um, at Inter. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, will the new changes to VAR make, decision, make decisions less controversial? So this is from Dale Johnson, who you should follow on Twitter. He is the ESPN VAR soccer law guru. Um, he wrote this. So Premier League uh, referees, Chief Mike Riley says officials will cut down on soft penalties next season while changes to VAR offside could prevent 20 goals from being disallowed. Um, so basically, let me break it down for you. Soft fouls or pens. And this is what Riley had to say about it. The principles we established are the referee should look for contact and establish clear contact, then ask if that contact has a consequence. And then has the player used that contact to try and win a foul or win a penalty, Riley added. It's not sufficient to say, yes, there's contact. So he goes on. I think partly we got into that frame of mind by the forensic analysis that went on in the VAR world. Contact on its own is only part of what the referee should look for. Consider consequence and the motivation of the player as well. Oh, that, that one to me, when you're that last sentence, consider consequence. Okay. And the motivation of the player as well. So basically those kind of penalties where you see a player, not, not even the dangle a leg one, but where he runs across the defender and there's contact. Oh, and straight away we said, well, there's contact in the box. It's got to be a penalty. They're, they're going to try and not do that so much is what I'm getting from this. Referees should look for contact and establish clear contact. Um, for offside, Riley says, on marginal offside, we've now effectively reintroduced the benefit of the doubt to the attacking player. Where we will have a really close offside decision, we carry on following the same process that we did last season with the one pixel lines. We'll then put on the thicker broadcast lines and where they overlap, those situations will be deemed to be onside. What we give back to the game is 20 goals that we would have disallowed last season by using quite forensic scrutiny. So the toenails, the noses of the players who are offside, they might have been offside last season, but next season they won't be. Now, the offside seems to be a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. The soft fouls and pens still very much open to interpretation, it seems. Yeah, I agree on both of those counts. You're right. The foul, the, the fouls in the box are going to remain subjective, and that's going to continue to be hard to adjudicate in VAR. Um, offsides, though, I think this is – I'm all for this. I think this is the league listening to their fans. Um, no one wanted the armpit offside calls anymore. No one, like it was against the spirit of the rule. Um, like you always talk about the molecular analysis of VAR, like nobody, that, that is not what we wanted when this was instituted. And I think this, I mean, right now, the way I read this is that I think this will solve a good portion of that. Um, I'm sure there will still be moments of controversy, but in terms of those ridiculous offsides where it was almost like they were bailing out bad defending at times, uh, I think this will eliminate that, and I'm all for it. And finally, uh, Javier Perez. I need your help with this one, Andrew. Okay. Prior to this Ings deal, what was the last big transfer that felt like it came out of nowhere? So I have a few. 
okay, give me them because I, I really struggle. I was going back to the 90s where random ones, you know, the way where the transfer window was all season long. And something would happen. And the next thing, Andy Cole would end up at Manchester United. Yeah. And, and look, pre-internet and like pre-Twitter, I imagine it was much easier for these things to happen sure. quietly. Um, but I, I have a couple here. And I did go online for some assistance to try to jog my memory. But okay, um, okay, tell me what you think of when West Ham signed Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano in 2006. Like oh. that was... That was... <laughs> the point is they didn't sign them. I guess, but but like I'm saying, when that was announced, was everyone's reaction not wait what? No, you're oh my god, that is such a good one that you've started, Andrew. You've started on a hot one there. That was absolutely everyone was what the how is (laughs) West Ham have signed two of the biggest talents in South American football? Right? How has this happened under the noses of the richest teams in the world? How has this happened? Definitely, one hundred percent nailed on. Um, then on a personal note, cause this happened, like you talk about the, the 11th hour, this was like the 11th hour and 59 minutes of the transfer window. When Tottenham signed Raphael Vandervaart, that was like a, Oh my God, are you serious? Uh, I just remember that as a fan being just like blown okay. away that that happened. And then the last one I, I thought of is I'm surprised you didn't think of this one because this is one of your all time favorites, JJ. When Leicester City signed Esteban Cambiasso. Oh, yeah. I mean, people had to be like, huh? Well, that is what? Uh, yeah, that was a weird one because the trajectory at that point, it wouldn't seem so weird now for a player in his 30s to go to Leicester who had a. No, but Leicester were not then what they are now. No, they nearly went down that season only for Cambiasso's uh, performances. So. It was Real, from Real Madrid to Inter Milan for Cambiasso and then Leicester. It was bizarre. It really was. Those are good ones, Andrew. Those are well, good ones. I, I hadn't factored them in. I shouldn't sound so surprised. I love when JJ gives me a nice pat on the head. So Job well done, it. son. Well done. Well, well there you go. Uh, man, that was, that was fun. I really enjoyed this. Before we get out, JJ, I do have something to tell you. Oh, I've watched the first two episodes of Ted Lasso. Oh, jeez. You know a show is, is a mega hit when the streaming service that they're on has decided to only release one episode per week. Yeah, you know that. They're want, they want to string this baby out as long as they possibly can. Oh, they are going to milk. They are going to suckle at the lasso teat for oh, as, yeah. long, as long as they possibly can. All right, go on then. Uh, don't give away any spoilers, obviously, because there are people who want... We want to watch this schlock, but um, what was it? Uh, was it Jeez. funny? Did was it good? Did it make you laugh? If you, I mean, like I said, it's only two episodes in so far. I would say if you like season one, you'll like season two. Like it's there's nothing. Like for example, I'm also watching the show Dave, um, right. with with Lil Dicky, my doppelganger, <laughs> and um, like that show, season one and season two, it's like they're different shows. Like, okay. Right. Ted Lasso, I'm not finding that to be the case. I'm finding it to pretty much be the same show, which I'm not I'm not trying to say that in any kind of bad way. Season 1 was an enormous success and so it feels like the same show. Um I know one thing, I can't keep watching the trailer for it because I get those very unique chills that you get where you're embarrassed for someone else when I'm watching it and Everyone's seen the trailer, so I don't mind saying it, where Coach Beard says something mm-hmm. and Ted Lasso responds by, 
You're darn tootin', Vladimir Putin. Oh, 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 my God. Oh, my God. My spine. Uh, this is not good for my back. So let, let's you and me have a conversation. No one else is listening. Now it's, right. I, I've hit stop on the recording. It's just you and me okay. talking. Now. <laughs> Do you actually hate the show or are you neutral on it? But the positive response to it by your nature has pushed you to this position. I think there is there is a little from column A, a little from column B, but mostly from column A. I, I honestly, I am, you know, more than anything, I am baffled, baffled that people think this is not good, but the best show they've ever seen. And that Ted Lasso is life. And that like they, they uh, certainly online, they can't help but tell people, oh, I can't wait. I'm, I'm sat down waiting for the first episode. Like it was the start of season six of The Sopranos. Like, it's, it's, I will say this. Is, as someone, I'm not judging them. I'm not judging them. This is a me problem. This is I you're there's a darkness to you. And this show is very light. And so you (laughs) it's never going to this was never going to be up your alley. I don't get it. And that is not a judgment on anyone else. I'm just baffled. All right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Look, I like the show. I do. I am also surprised that it is a little bit surprised that it is as beloved as it is where it is like I, I sat down last night to watch it with Amanda and. It might it might be her favorite show. She loves it. She absolutely loves it. Like people, I don't know. It just seems to have something about it uh, has captured the world in a way that I wouldn't I, say. I, didn't I wouldn't expect. say the world. I, I I would love to get the feedback. Actually, I wouldn't love to get the feedback from from the United Kingdom or Ireland. I, I nobody wants that. The only one other thing I wanted to mention. This isn't giving anything away, but um, so. Remember, JJ, I told the story a few weeks ago about how I went to the ice bar in Barcelona and a bunch of uh, Dutch people were there and they made fun of me for being an American using a credit card. Yeah. And you never forgot about it. What's your deal? Like, what are you guys even talking? So on the on the team, AFC Richmond um, in the show, I guess they've signed a a Dutch player and he's like he's in, in like the first scene or whatever. He's saying something that's very blunt and rude. And they, I might get the line wrong a little bit, but like somebody says to him, like, why are you being so rude? And another guy in the room says, he's not being rude. He's just Dutch. And I was, so when he said that, I was like, like, are they, is that a a thing? Mm. No, I think it's more the case that, uh, like we talked about the honesty, we've talked on this podcast, the honesty of Christian Eriksen and some of the Dutch players about what they thought of playing against Ireland in the well, past. Christian Eriksen is Danish. Y- yeah, sorry. That region, though, there's okay. a, there's, there's a, I've noticed the bluntness with Scandinavian people, German people, and Dutch people when I was in Amsterdam. It is, it's more, um, and it's, you know, I'm sure they have ways in their, in their own language of, of being subtle, but when, it's, when it comes to English, it's quite, quite straightforward. It's interesting because after they made that joke, I was like, huh, maybe I just experienced that. Yeah. The Danes, the Dutch. I never um, knew this. Some French people uh, and a few Germans I've met very, <laughs> Germans are actually more, they make, they make more of an effort, you know, to check the, mm-hmm. the, maybe the, not the tone. Yeah. The tone of what they say. I prefer um, a much more passive aggressive approach. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you are you are well into passive aggressiveness. I, I experience it all the time in, in, in my daily life, even when uh, I text you. 
by the way, you mentioned Christian Erickson. That reminded me. The last thing I wanted to say before we get out, uh, what a, an awesome thing to see him back around Inter. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly the, the nature of whether or not he'll be able to train or play. I think there's still elements of this that are up in the air. Um, but he visited inter-training, uh, got to be around his teammates, saw him just just to see him like living his life is refreshing. And even more so to see him hugging his teammates uh, that were all obviously so concerned about him that you know all watched what happened. Uh, and to be able to hug him again, I'm sure it means so much to both him and certainly those players. So that was really, um, really just awesome to see as he continues to uh, to recover. So props to him. Um, and also, too, uh, with with that good comes one bad, bad injury uh, in a friendly for Wesley Fofana of Leicester City. Not what a, a, not a good way, obviously, to start the season for them. I feel the terrible tackle. for him. The tackle was outrageous. Broken fibula is uh, they've announced that so far. Fofana posted a message on it. He said they're still waiting the extent of the full diagnosis, but uh, they do know he has broken his leg. Um, terrible, great young player. I saw in his post, you know, he's got a big smile and he seems to have a good attitude. He said he's a warrior. I'm going to be back even better. Uh, so he's got the right attitude, but uh, that was that was sickening. That was tough to watch. And that, that's an awful way for uh, for his season and for the season at large to start. So, well, let's just hope that it's uh, just a broken leg, which is not the catastrophic thing it used to be. And it's there's no ligament involvement or anything else. Right. And because um, it was it was an outrageous tackle. It was yeah. a disgrace, especially in a friendly. I mean, my God, oh, no but, need for it. Yeah. At any rate. Well, hey, this was uh, this was a big one. Enjoyed this podcast immensely, JJ. I guess next week this time we'll be knee deep in season previews. We've got season previews coming up as well. Uh, That's for sure. So much work to do. Yeah. No, it's going to be. We always make it enjoyable. It's fun. Oh, I didn't say at any point it wouldn't be enjoyable. I just said I have a lot of work to do. Andrew's going to be deep in Brentford. That's right. I certainly will. Um, well, this was fun. I enjoyed this so much. Our thanks to Alexi Lalas. Uh, JJ, my thanks to you. I hope you feel better. Whatever kind of whatever good wishes I can send you, uh, I'm sending them your way. Get that back, back in shape, and uh, feel better, my friend. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. To you, I say. Check it later, fun boy. See ya. Take care, man. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 